a very happy new year to all you green signalers out there. And the warmest of welcomes to season two of your no-nonsense, no-punches-pulled podcast on all things railway. We're delighted to be with you again, and Richard, Steph and I hope you find prosperity, happiness and good health in the coming year. So we're going to kick off with a big change to how we do Green Signals. Um, there's been a fantastic response, which we've all found very touching and encouraging. And so we've been giving plenty of thoughts over the turkey and sprouts. Um, to Lots of sprouts. We, yeah, in your case, maybe. Um, <laughs> you can have my share. Um, how we actually approach the programme, and the response has really steered our thinking because we've had lots of comments on the news and then lots of comments on the, the interviews. And we've found that we've not, we don't think we do give in either full justice. So we're sort of squeezing up our newsy bits up front and then the interviews maybe could go a bit longer because we need to keep the whole programme within a, a manageable distance. So what we're going to do is going to separate them. We're going to do the big interviews on their own, and then we'll do other more magazine-type discussions, the long-form discussions of Richard and I blathering on about railways, um, with me being right most of the time and, and Richard providing a counterpoint. Um, Hugh? No, he's not saying anything. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, clearly that's not true, but never mind. Keep going. <laughs> But the long-form discussions, which people really seem to like. So we're going to get straight into it this time. We're going to, And we've decided to do what's frequently too often the poor relation of the railway, and that's yeah. freight. So let's get underway. We thought we'd kick off the new year with a look at one of the most important aspects of the railway and have a festive feast of freight. Too often the poor relation, as I just said, and gets a rough deal because of the blunt truth that freight trains don't vote so too many politicians take too little interest. Well, we are taking lots of interest. Is that right, Richard? It absolutely is. By the way, I loved the festive feast of freight. That was super. Did you write that one? I did. You can't beat a bit of alliteration. Very good. I mean, there's plenty more Fs we could have put in there, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Right? Moving swiftly on. But rail freight is absolutely vital to the economy because of supply chain logistics. And as we look to decarbonise, more and more freighters should have, should have an even bigger role to play. Yet it still doesn't get the focus and priority it both deserves and demands. So we're going to look at freight from two aspects. First, policy and its trade association's point of view. And then second, from the operator's point of view. For that, we're going to be joined by John Smith, Managing Director of GB Rail Freight, um, who's a real character in the industry, isn't it, Richard? You and I are lucky to know John fairly well, and life with John around is never dull, is it? It, it most certainly is not, <laughs> as, as we will find out shortly. In, indeed. Uh, they used to talk about zoo radio, didn't they? Well, this is maybe zoo podcasting <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, with the way John tackled the interview. And secondly... Um, we're delighted to welcome Maggie Simpson, the very impressive director of the enormous influential Rail Freight Group. And Maggie used to work for you, I think, Richard, didn't she, at the SRA? It, it, she's brilliant. I mean, she was um, a very, um, you know, a real leading light in the in the freight team within the SRA. Um, she's measured, she's calm, but she's, she's tough and straight. And uh, no, I'm very much looking forward to this enormously knowledgeable as well mm. and a jolly nice person to boot we uh, we like maggie please be aware 
that we recorded both the interviews you're about to see just before Christmas in order to navigate around this festive break. And suffice to say, Richard and I have both of the view that Maggie and John were absolutely brilliant. So here we go. Maggie, always great to talk to you. Um, I always know I'm going to hear some good sense on the freight business and a bit of politics thrown in. So um very pleased you're here. The Rail Freight Group, I've been dealing with the Rail Freight Group a long time, um, since the middle of the last century, it seems, well, back last few years of it. Um, what exactly, for those who, who, who are only obsessed with the passenger network, just give us a brief outline of what the Rail Freight Group actually does and how it's organised and, I suppose, importantly, how it's funded. Yeah, thanks, Nigel, and a pleasure talking to you both today. So Rail Freight Group was formed pre-privatisation by a group of uh, British Rail Freight customers who sort of had enough of the way they were being treated. Reliability was atrocious, locomotives weren't turning up, uh, their demands weren't being met. So they got together to try and do something about that. Uh, They sort of existed as a casual group till about 97 when we were created in our current form, which is a company limited by guarantee. We're funded completely by our members. We have about 130 member companies. That's everything from freight train operators, end customers, ports, quarries, retailers, uh, rolling stock equipment manufacturers and support services. Uh, And they fund us through their membership fees and through the events and sponsorship that we do. So key challenges facing the rail freight industry today, because there's always been key challenges, but they haven't always been the same one, have they? Um, it, it's evolved as time's gone by. So what's the answer to that question today? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I, I think if you flip the question and look at the opportunities facing rail freight today, because I think that, okay. you know, that, that's something that really has changed, good. I would say, good in point. the last few years, in that what we're seeing is customers really, really being driven on decarbonisation of supply chains. And they, you know, they to a person want to use more rail freight as part of that journey. And I want to use it now because actually, you know, whatever happens by 2050, if they use some rail freight today, then that's helping them to grow their business without growing their carbon emissions, uh, reduce the carbon that they're emitting right now. And so we're seeing a huge pressure from customers to do more on rail freight, to get more goods moving uh, and to improve the rail freight services that we've got. And we're, we're seeing that right across the sectors from shipping lines, ports, through to construction businesses, supermarkets, and even parcels, of course, with the, the new Varamis rail services that are running. So, so there's a huge opportunity. And I think, you know, governments are beginning to get the opportunity a little bit. Uh, so it's actually quite a sweet spot in many respects. But there, of course, there are some challenges that go with that. I think uh, the state of, of the UK economy isn't helping anybody at the moment, to be honest, but that will pass, hopefully. Uh, but then cost efficiency, rail, you know, rail's too expensive compared to road uh, many times. And, and that is a challenge for customers. So we need to make rail freight cheaper. We need to make the railways cheaper and we need to make rail freight more productive on the network. We need to find the right partnerships. So when we're looking particularly at um you know, parcels businesses or, or retail businesses, they don't always have full trains all the time. So finding the partnerships that we can work together so people can can build those trains. And, and the customers are working really hard on that. Things like strategic rail freight interchanges where we've got lots of warehousing around a railhead. That's really good for that. Um, but we need those partnerships there. We need Network Rail uh, playing their part then in making the network Uh, fit for purpose for freight Uh, obviously that means it's got to be reliable it's got to be high performing Uh, but it's also got to modernize what how it works you know some of the systems that we run on a you know 
older than some of us on this podcast today. And, you know, it's it's time they were modernized and, and you know, help the industry to mm. transform in the way that it approaches sort of digital technology and innovation as well. Maggie, that that's, um, you, you mentioned there about uh, the fact the economy is a little bit down at the moment and it will come back. And, and clearly that's, that's, I think we all, we all um, take that view. With West Coast Mainline, let's just talk about West Coast Mainline because um, government recently made um, a decision to cancel phase two of, of high speed two. Uh, you were very, the rail freight group were quite critical of that, very politely so, you were very calm, very measured. Uh, but nonetheless, it has big impacts for when the economy does come through that cycle and can't yeah. come back again because it's such an important freight corridor. The government said they were going to spend some money on other schemes like Ely and so on, all great. But without that corridor capacity, have we, have we got a problem? Yeah, I mean, I mean Ely's a really important scheme for freight. Let's no, no, no mistake. It's important for Felix Stowe. It's also important for Sizewell and, you know, the booming construction market that there is in East Anglia and for passengers as well. So, you know, we're really pleased that Ely's on that list. We'd like government to pull its finger out and actually commit to doing the work now. Um, but, uh, but by the way, but it doesn't substitute for capacity on the West Coast mainline. I mean, you know... The, the West Coast mainline links London, Manchester, Birmingham, the three largest conurbations, and that's before we've got Liverpool and Scotland in the mix. It runs through the golden, you know, the golden triangle of warehousing. We've got strategic rail freight interchanges popping up all along it, you know, encouraged actually by the capacity that HS2 should have delivered. People have made billion pound investments on the back of that. Um and so, you know, the potential for growth is huge and this decision will make that harder. I think what, as you've reflected on your other podcast episodes, the passenger situation is totally unclear. So we don't know how many HS2 trains there's going to be. We don't know how many residual passenger trains, how long they're going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So the first problem is understanding what that capacity crunch actually is. We know we will there'll be one. We don't know how big it will be or where it will be although we can make some fairly clever guesses about that um and then some money is going to have to be spent to fix them and you know actually as well as the release capacity that we haven't got you know in my darker moments i actually think there could be a threat to the capacity that we have got if government tries to force those hs2 trains on onto the network regardless um and you know i haven't seen that recently but we've certainly seen references to that in the past so um you know i think there's a nervousness in my members about you know not only the new capacity but the existing capacity as well and it, you know even north of crew there were challenges anyway um they weren't resolved yeah. uh, crew manchester's was pretty sticky between phase 2a and 2b anyway that's not resolved so there were some problems there that needed to be faced up to anyway um, what are the positives? I suppose now the decision's been made, it's some of those politics fall away. We're all at least on the same page. Um, I think, you know, Hugh Merriman has heard us. There's some working groups being established. Um, people are starting, you know, to engage with the freight community better than they have been in the past over HS2 planning. So I think, there's, you know, there are some positives in the way forward, but it is a real worry. I mean, how on earth can you plan when there's all those unknowns? Well, you can't, can you? Um, yeah, I think one of the things that makes to... yeah one of the things that makes me the most cross really, I think, is that breach of trust. You know, I mean, we, yes. you know, you can't rely on what a government says, but once it's reached Act of Parliament, you, you kind of think you ought to be yes. able to. And, and 
And if you're an investor and you're looking at the UK now, what do you think? You know, you you can't even rely on a government act of parliament. Then what can you rely on? And, you know, people who are building this infrastructure, they've got every country in the world to put their money into. So so there's a real job for this government or next to rebuild that confidence, I think. On the subject of the next government, I mean, I know Louise Haig has been sort of taking expert advice here and there from people Mm. who know what they're talking about. Um, are you talking to her at all? I mean, of course, there's no guarantee that she'd get the Secretary of State's job, is there, if and when a Labour government comes to, to power? But are you, have you got a dialogue going there? Um, I mean, we haven't been talking to Louise, but we have been talking to Tan and, you know, members have been speaking to Stephen as well. Uh, you know, we've over the years talked a lot with, with, with the Labour Party, you know, as well as, as other opposition parties as well. Uh, you know, if I took this year, we've spoken to the Scottish Transport Minister, the Welsh Transport Minister, you know, and, and many others. And, and at the highest level, I think they are to a drumbeat supportive of more rail freight. There isn't a lot of cross-party division hmm. in what they want to see in rail freight. Yeah. Obviously, where it matters is what they do in detail about the delivery of that. Service. But of course, uh, you know, at the kind of manifesto level where we are now, then, you know, I'm. I think what I see is is a uniformity of view that having more rail freight is good for the economy, it's good for the environment, and therefore that a government would support yeah. it. I mean, in terms of trust, it's only March that Sunak said that they were completely committed to HS2, mm-hmm. and it's even more recently that Starmer was saying, we will build HS2 in full, but of course you don't hear that now, do you? No, well, I guess anybody approaching an election is going to be slightly more cagey till they see just how many pennies are left in the tin when they get there, aren't okay. they? Okay, um, let's go back yeah. specifically to Frey. You've often talked about relatively small electrification schemes, mm. infills and that sort of thing. And I saw in, was it New Seven Engineer, the figure of 60 miles being mentioned, that 60 miles of electrification could transform um, the electric haulage stats as a whole. I mean, is that right? And what chance do you think there is of that happening? Um, or is the future going to be more hybrid or bi-mode or even tri-mode so that, you know, it's not so much the last mile, but, you know, joint journeys of electrified route and non-electrified route. Where, where are we going to go on that one? Yes, I think it's important to think about, you know, what's happening today and then also about what's happening in the future because every tonne of carbon we can keep out the atmosphere today is is a good thing. And, and those infill schemes really particularly resonate today where we've got an electric fleet that perhaps isn't working as hard as it could and journeys that could easily switch into that electric fleet if those few miles were done and you know the obvious candidate is the branch line down to the port at london gateway three miles and you could switch trains to birmingham manchester scotland from there which are running already they're running diesel you could switch them onto electric easily and the same with goes a bit around um the back of old oak common around acton uh, which is probably going to get progressed because of the HS2 works down there. But, you know, that would switch Felixstowe to Cardiff and some of the trains that run that kind of corridor. So there are little bits like that, which are just no-brainers. You, you'd you have more electric haulage today. I think if you look to the future, um, you know, something like 500, 550 Class 66 is around, and they're not going anywhere long, you know, anytime soon. But any new locos that are going to come in are going to be bi-modes. And so, you know, the first of those John's class, John Smith's Class 66, Class 99s are probably going to come into testing later this year or early next. If they work as well as they're promised, they'll be, you know, a transformative a locomotive. John's got, I think, 30 on order. I'd be surprised yeah. if more didn't follow for other Fox as well. But when they're running, they're going to want their pantographs up. 
wherever they can. And so I think the challenge there is making sure that we've got power in the network in all the right places um, and that the routes where they are on, they can use the electric as much as they possibly can. Just to end on a sort of a policy note then, I guess, um, you mentioned that um, Hugh Merriman um, has set up, uh, there's a working group now looking at post um, HS2, which is obviously, you know, that's a good thing. At least there's now an engagement there. But do you think more generally, do you think the, the government now listen to uh, ra- the needs of rail fa- freight by the customers or operators or you um, more than they did? Or, or is it is it always a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a constant battle for the share of voice? So, I mean, I think both things are true, actually. I mean, if you took freight in all its modes, I think government is, well, DFT certainly, are much more aware of its importance i think you know the pandemic showed that actually um you know we joke about a good toilet roll shortage focusing minds but it genuinely does um and you know right across road freight rail freight air freight there's a lot more effort and energy going into understanding the needs and supporting those sectors I, and, and that's true in rail as well i think you know government is better on rail and actually network uh, on freight network rail i think are actually better on freight than they were as well it, it sort of only gets you so far um, and, and where we've sort of got to get to is, is into the, you know, the day to day thinking, the operational decision making that goes on in the industry and get freight much more embedded into that. And, you know, I think there has been good progress, but it's often at that point where we get stuck. You know, we shouldn't have to be in the room for people to be talking about freight. And often we do. You know, I say to them, if you didn't have the passenger people, there, you would, you'd still talk passenger, wouldn't you? So so we need to get it more embedded in, into the day to day, I think. I mean, is that is that freight thing still a problem right at the front line, Maggie? That business of you know, recessing freight trains and getting them out of the way because they're not that important, or there's the old chestnut about this passenger train's running late because of a late running freight train. Um, yeah, these sort of uh, things they, they might be relatively modest, but they do indicate a mindset, don't they? Yeah, they do, and you know, I suppose. I mean, I sort of worry a bit if you know we go forward to the GBR model, it will get even more entrenched because then. The people, you, you know, there'll be even more ownership of the passenger trains within that economy. But um, I, I, I get, you know, if it's a fail freight train, then it's a fail freight train. Fine. If it's a charter or, a, you know, a engineering train or something like that that gets called that, then that makes me quite cross. And sometimes we'll get told it's a late running freight train. And when you go in and look, it's probably been poorly regulated somewhere else on the network. So there isn't that sort of system view that enables people to be properly informed about what's going on. Um, you know, and if you, you know, there are some classics where empty trains get regulated because they're empty, but then they don't have time to load and unload and get back out on time. Uh, so, so there's there's an understanding gap, and I, I, genuinely, yeah. I think there's a system gap as well. People haven't got the information out of these archaic systems to to tell them what's actually going on. Well, look, I I, I think um, that rail freight group uh, and the rail operators uh, rail freight operators sorry are probably you know that from from my point of view there's probably as much energy and can do and you know make it happen in that sector than there is in <laughs> frankly often in all the other sectors put together so it, it is exciting to hear um and uh, you know we'll carry on being absolutely supportive oh, yes. um because it's it, it's it's a huge um hugely important thing for the decarbonisation agenda, the economy as a whole, 
as you said, people don't really understand when the when the logistics don't work, life doesn't work. So um, listen, Maggie, thank you so much for for taking the time and uh, all power to the Rail Freight Group. And hopefully we'll um, speak again. Yes, and if we can help you out with anything or something that you think we're missing, do let us know. We're right thank behind you. you. Yeah. We will. Absolutely. Thanks, Maggie. Bye for now. Okay. Well, Richard, that was a very characteristic set of clear, no-nonsense responses from Maggie, don't you think? Yeah, it was great. Um, some slightly alarming stuff, not because it was <laughs> that Maggie said it. It was, it was alarming what she was talking about. I was particularly um, concerned about the comments she made around the potential for losing capacity on the West Coast Main Line compared to even what is there now. And I think she's actually flagging a very important issue, given the decision around HS2, given the lack of capacity that we know about north of Hansacre Junction. Um, there is a risk that when the politics plays out of having to put passenger services on, um, that freight will find itself getting squeezed. That That's something we've got to be all extremely alive to. And we'll be keeping our finger on that particular pulse, as we will about the fate of Phase 2A anyway, won't we? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the thing that um, came to light for me in the HS2 issues, which I must admit I hadn't really given much thought to, um, is the damage that the um, the Prime Minister's stupid decision has done to investment confidence in the logistics industry, people who were going to invest in depots and terminals and private sidings and everything else, is now not going to happen. Yeah, I, it's 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 interesting again what she said. I mean, it, if, when they build these big logistics terminals, these big, you know, massive great distribution centres and sheds, they will still get used. Um, they'll get used for road-based haulage, clearly. But the people that were interested in um, looking at rail will just will just won't come back. You know, that's the problem. These these are not decisions that just have that have no consequence and that that's the really um depressing thing it takes an enormous amount of time to get people excited about rail freight it takes no time at all to switch them off well that's right and that's what i meant when, we, when i said it wouldn't happen um and of course we did this in 1955 didn't we with the foot plateman strike um there was hundreds of thousands of tons of freight deserted the railway to the roads and never came no. back we don't learn, do we? All right, let's move to our second wonderful guest on this show. And <laughs> we were genuinely delighted to speak with GB Rail Freight Managing Director, John Smith. And as I said earlier, anyone who's had the unforgettable privilege to meet John or has come to know him well, as Richard and I both have done, will know that he is a true and irresistible force of nature. He's an irrepressible ball of unstoppable energy. He's relentlessly positive, half full. He's incredibly commercial. And what's always really impressed me particularly is John always leads the charge from the front in business during the day <laughs> and then into the pub when it's time to relax. And he's always first to the bar and very often the last to leave it. John's passion for people is one of his most admirable and effect, most effective characteristics. So get your seasonal glass of Baileys ready and a few snacks maybe and pay attention because this interview shows John at his wonderful best. He, um, he, he bounces around like Tigger on speed, 
bangs the table, his phone goes off. It's all wonderfully larger than life, but it's John at his very best, and we love him for it. So for that reason, Richard hasn't edited this much. It left, it's a bit like a live album, isn't it, Richard? <laughs> that's a great, that's exactly what it's like, yeah. It comes across exactly as you had it on the night sort of thing, mm. with all the little wrinkles as well. We think it's why you're going to love it as much as we did. So let's do it. So good morning, John Smith. Delightful to have you here. Um, the GB Rail Freight story is a remarkable one. I remember the company being founded. Um, how, how did it all get underway? Um, and just as a, if you like a subset to that, I, I do remember being told at the time that Network Rail played a big part in pushing for it because it was fed up of a lousy service from EWS. I was hearing all sorts of stories about um, drivers just shutting engines down and clearing off at the end of the shift and in the middle of a job, and that the, this new freight company was going to uh, play a big part in putting this right. So how did it all start? Is that true or urban myth? Um, and what's the scale oh, of the business today? Um, well, almost I'm going back to the beginning, almost lost in the mists of time, actually, Nigel. Um, from a very personal level, um, I was working as what was called Deputy Managing Director of a small passenger franchise, Anglia Railways. And we had a bunch of nutters who were our shareholders uh, called GB Railways. Uh, still around, some of them, Mike Shavers, Max Steinkoff, Jeremy, Jeremy Long. Uh, we're still, we're all actually lifelong friends now. Um, they had ideas around uh, winning more franchises, which they didn't do, um, but doing open access uh, on the network because back then there was, a, uh, as we go through these cycles, there was an encouragement towards open access. Um, and actually, some of the spin-offs on the passenger side, so I don't know whether you remember, but we ran an open access operation which triangulated around London from Colchester to Basingstoke, Basingstoke to Northampton, Northampton back round to uh, Colchester. Um, and Hull Trains was uh, one of the spin-offs um, that they created. Um, I just got married um, and I got fairly disillusioned with the industrial relations, even in a, a soft, quiet place like East Anglia, um, where I felt that there was a very vocal minority leading a silent majority astray in the industry and and i still sadly feel that that's come to the fore uh, currently with some of the ir issues the industry faces um so um i had two choices my wife and i or new wife and i bc before kids uh could we thought about a beach beach bar in barbados um i i seemed, both she and and i bitterly regret not having gone down that avenue but instead <laughs> but instead um we had this um it was mike shavis's idea so why don't we set up a freight company there's been no competition so you remember 95 was privatization or we're old enough to remember it yeah and 2000 was when we incorporated gb rail freight uh, and between in those five years freightliner existed as an mbo just doing deep sea market uh, EWS, as was, uh, did everything else, but there'd been no real competition between them. And as you say, um, there was a degree of dissatisfaction from the network rail, was rail track then. They were the biggest customer and still are the biggest customer of rail freight in the UK. They're a bit schizophrenic um, because obviously they sell to us as well as buy from us. But 
what they do and how they resource it's hugely important to the rail freight industry. It gets missed on occasions. Um, so uh, there was very driven chat, and back then it was uh, rail track was floated. The share price was sixteen pounds, whatever it was, um, and they had a degree of freedom to move things on outside of government procurement processes. And uh, there was a chap I met uh, was determined to break the mould. So. I said to Michael, OK, I'll give it a go. I had loads of consultants looking at it who were just, you know, taking your watch and telling you the time. And I think I concluded that the only way to start this was to find a, the biggest customer to see whether they had a desire to split their supply chain up. And, and that's what we did. And that chap called Martin Elwood, actually, Martin's retired now. Um, and it was then, as you described, it was he, you know, when he had a he, he was responsible for all the big renewals programs. When he had a ploughed field at Stratford, the last thing he needed was the train driver to be uh, awkward about what was required of them. He just wanted, he had enough problems with his yellow plant, with the project plan going awry, with everything else that happens in big jobs on uh, existing railways. And um, so he, we, we couldn't raise finance. Um, I used to go around the city of London trying to raise a million quid of working capital. We used to get the most junior bankers who would question me as to why the trains were always late into Liverpool Street. I, I blamed Richard at that particular point. Oh, well, um, fair, fair, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, what um, Railtrack did and what they could do was they acted as a guarantor on our leases for the first right. batch of local. So we negotiated a deal. Uh, we ordered the seven locos. The logic was that we would be bankrupt within a year, uh, but then the agreement was that Network Rail would guarantee the uh, the leases on the locos would step into them and spread them elsewhere. And then it it was a clean sheet of paper. It was it was something that allowed us to get hold of the silent majority and go, look, look, if you work hard, if you like trains, if you're rail, true railway people and you want to earn decent crust, you know, we'll pay you good money, but but we need more from you. Um, in terms of cooperation, flexibility, productivity. Um, and there was only, there was about 20 of us when we started, I think. Um, and that's, and, and that's John, really how it came about. And John, I know, I know just, just stepping in briefly, I know people give privatisation a hard time for lots of reasons now. But just hearing you talk about that, this is why we did it. You know, th this is, it was yeah. like, because we're just going to have a go. We're just yeah. going to have a go and see what happens. I mean, it is, we've kind of lost a bit of that, haven't we? Well, it was eye-opening to me, Richard, because, I mean, I've had half my life in the nationalised industry and half of it in the private sector. And wherever we are now, certainly back then, it was just so exciting. And mm. it exposed what was a fairly naive engineer, maintenance engineer on the railways, to commerciality, to um, the importance of productivity within the assets that you were using. And it just gave you a completely different outlook. And you met people from from a completely different walk of life it, it yeah. gave you so it was great and and back in the nationalized days i mean i had a reputation i used to go and close places and lay people off and all of a sudden you could buy things and employ people it was just brilliant I loved so it. what's the scale of the business today john um we we employ about 1500 people now um we're we're fairly national uh Nigel, we go our furthest north Train crew depots in Venice. Um, our furthest south is um, oh, probably, well, we operate to Calais, so we operate through the okay. Channel Tunnel. Uh, and we, um, yeah, we're probably, uh, we're probably bigger than some of those we originally set up to well, compete against. Well, did I see something in the news recently that your wagon fleet is now bigger than DB's? 
Yeah, it depends how you measure it because okay. some of it is hook and haul, so it's not all ours. Right. But but we but we have over two thousand wagons and about one hundred and fifty locomotives now. And the business at a turnover level, I'll have to shoot you if I tell you the profit. But if, at a turnover level, we'll turn about three hundred and twenty, three hundred and thirty million this year. So okay, so the corporate co- yeah. it has been a superb growth richard i mean it, it was fascinating because i remember that the company being launched just about as i was taking over on rail back in which was not summer 95 so you, you came along after that excuse me and it's been absolutely fantastic just watching the growth but one of the big differences john um, that i see from the outside and I, I know it's obvious inside is gb's culture is very different um it's it's one of the company's defining characteristics it's um i believe it's primarily driven by you um but train drivers are far more customer facing for example at terminals and everywhere else you call them trade managers rather than drivers i think don't you um so how would you sort of sum up your philosophy with gb what is it that what is it that makes you (laughs) stop what is it that makes you different (laughs) Stop laughing, for goodness sake. Well, I, I, I don't – I mean, a, a lot of people have argued as to whether you can keep the momentum going as you get more people working here. Um, I wholly disagree with that. I think you can. Um, I think you have to have a, a second or a third tier of leadership uh, that shares your view on people and life. Um, I mentioned, you know, the only way – we make money and generate cash, whatever the economic model you sit in, it is what it is. But productivity of labor and productivity of the rolling stock is key to it. It's probably the only thing that's key. So if, if, if people understand more about the business, then they're more inclined to feel that they can affect it and, and be part of it. But I like, you know, in the old days, you could gather them, everyone around. And it, it's very difficult on a railway company because you haven't got a shop floor. You can't suddenly stop production for an hour and bring everyone to, to attention whilst you spout rubbish at them. Um, but here, it's, it's I find people fascinating. You know, I, I, I think if you treat them well, you, you, ex- you have to hold them to account. You know, and in a business our size, there's always the odd bad apple. But ultimately, you look after people. You don't apply, you don't let HR run the management of people. The management of people is down to the leaders who are the operations managers who are in the field. And they will know who to look after. They will know um, people. You know, we, we, we don't, if someone's sadly got some serious illness, we don't stop their pay at six months. We keep them going because they've contributed a huge amount to the business. You don't rigidly apply rules that HR come up with. You have to be careful because there's always the issue of bias. But but I like going to the pub. I like having a chat with people. I've got I've got a mate who does child protection in Northampton. By Christ, his job's a lot more uh, more pressurised actually and difficult than mine. And and but I can talk to him till the cows come home. And I think you just have to have an interest in people, look after people, and I think they'll work hard for you. It's not, it's not rocket science. You, you also mentioned leadership there, John, and people have asked me what makes GB different. And I've, I've said, well, a lot of it tracks back to John. You know, During the day, it leads people into the business with tremendous enthusiasm. And then when they shut down... During the evening, it leads them into the pub. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's just exactly... That was exactly... You've shot my fox, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry, I do apologise. I was going to say, at the end of the day, when the engine's shut down and the handbrake's on, he leads the same people with equal enthusiasm into the pub yeah. and he's yeah. first to the bar. 
you know. So. Well, we have to change our culture a bit. We're looking after kids and stuff like that as well. But yes, but it, uh, it, it's it, a slightly glib answer. But there's a lot of truth in it, John. You do drive yeah. that that feel within the business. Yeah, but if they if they get honestly, Nigel, if if people if people know you. So if anyone ever emails me, I have 1,500 people, I'll email them back. It might take me a couple of days on occasions. But if, if you treat them as individuals, because uh, they are all individuals, and you build up the trust, so, someone who trusts me will work hard for yeah. me. And you could argue it's mercenary. You could argue it's ruthless, you know, because being nice to people actually makes them work hard and trust you. So why wouldn't you run a business like that? And sadly... Now, some of the balance of the industry now, and it's not necessarily down to the leaders within there, it's just down to the structure of it now. But there's no ownership. There's, you know, um, Christian, Walmart blesses cotton socks, sort of describes it as the no one gives a toss railway or whatever. And sadly, there's a bit of that out there. People, you know, people care here, I think. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, and it, it, so I don't see it as difficult. I, I think. You know, those that work with me and for me, if you want to describe it as that, they have a harder job. They, they've got to hold people to account on occasions, and sometimes there's formality around that, and that can create bitterness. Um, so the way that you do that and lead people and then re-motivate them becomes important. I, I can go around and just yeah. lyrical and wave royally. It's easy, you know. It's... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you make, you, you make, find you, it you... easy, John. A lot of senior managers <laughs> don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's that's actually very fair. And you, you say it sounds mercenary. I think those who know you know it's actually because you, you, you care. Um, but that, that it leads very nicely onto um, the industry because you mentioned, um, you know, that, that real concern around almost like that everybody's sort of lost a bit of there's, – there's real low energy at the moment and, you know, nobody really cares kind of stuff. So if you take a step back and, and – away from GB Rail Freight and just look at the rail freight sector as a whole in the UK, what do you see? Do you just see, I suppose, a bit of despondency? Do you see some positivity? I know you're relentlessly positive as a person, but what's your 30,000-foot view of rail freight in the UK in 2023? Um, I think, um, I mean, this is a bit of a USP. I think some of the competition we uh, work with and against um, still have some industrial relations issues that need sorting out. And I think, you know, I think performance um, certainly is a challenge uh, at the moment as far as the customers are concerned. I I think from my perspective, I think we're in a sweet spot. Um, There's things you cannot affect and the markets are one of those. You have to adapt to that. You can protect yourself commercially over it, you know, seek guarantees in contracts, do whatever else you might want to do. Um, But overall, I think we're in a sweet spot, but the economy is fairly shit at the moment. Um, And uh, we will see through the green agenda, through whoever gets into power next, a continued momentum towards decarbonisation. And we tick that box. Um, uh, we've got to work at that because I don't think we can run class 66s till the year 2100. Um, so there's a need for capital investment and things to change. But overall, I think we tick the boxes and we're seeing, you know, a number of customers at the moment. Uh, and there's some that are fighting for survival. So you understand when they say, sorry, a lorry's cheaper. You know, we ain't, we ain't sticking anything on rail at the moment. But overall, the general direction and general momentum is with us. We need healthy competition. It's not um, 
a good thing, I don't think, on occasions that um, some of our competition is struggling financially. Um, you know, we need a profitable industry across the whole um, of the uh, of the industry. I think the eight percent growth target, whatever the rights and wrongs of GBRTT, and whatever the rights and wrongs of where the government has failed to legislate, and whatever the rights and wrongs of pulling that together, at least it has spat out a growth target that. I'm not sure it's 8% growth of what. Wagons, tons, money, not quite sure, but it sits out there and it's giving us an opportunity to focus people. I still think there's those that, that, that don't get it, that are not facilitating our growth. I think, I think we're a vehicle to decarbonisation, um, but actually it needs a little bit of support. We're not running away, we'll barrel loads of money here. And if we're to reinvest, if we're to... Uh, buy more locomotives, decarbonize what we've got if we're to build maintenance facilities. You know, we've got to generate a bit of cash to plow back into the industry. And I think sometimes some of the control measures that are in the DFT, some of the control measures that are in the ORR, they're not necessarily fully appreciating that. I think the transport ministry is good in that context, mm. but but it just takes a long time to change stuff. Just, so just going to that point about the growth target, right? Because I, I, I came across that and thought, why is that um, a kind of a government target? I mean, the one thing I kind of always felt about rail freight was the best thing you could do to help it grow was kind of not get in its way, support it, but not but not really try and manage it because actually you're really good at that, right? So I, I struggle with quite why somebody else has given you that, that target. It's a bit like sort of Soviet Russia saying grow more wheat, you know. <laughs> yeah, generate more electricity from coal. Now, the, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think, I think it has, um, it, and it has some perverse outcomes because it was enshrined within GBRTT originally was the logic. So they go off and say, uh, "Oh well, we might use our land to build an intermodal terminal." And I go, "No, no, you haven't the first clue of the deep sea market. You haven't the first clue of where the right geographic spot is for these things." Mm. There are warehousing businesses out there. There are terminal operators who will start to build these things through the private sector because it makes money, and that's your job to facilitate. What I want them to do is, you know, when we're doing deals over putting infrastructure onto their sites, I want them to oil the wheels of that. Yeah. When we need, you know, I, I laughed in Peterborough because there was some momentum. It's gone away now for GBRDT to build a new intermodal terminal. I'm going, that's too close to Felixstowe. That won't work. You don't understand the market. But by the way, I've just paid two million for new track on what was a derelict site. Can you just connect that to your railway at the far end and not take <laughs> two years to bloody do it? And then once you've got that in, I can be more efficient and I'll start to exploit the thing. So I think there's a little bit of uh, usefulness of it within DFT, Richard. I, I think that they have, you know, there's some small subsidy measure measures which are revenue-based in there, which I think a bit like a tap on a shower. You can turn up a little bit and see whether it gets too hot or you can turn them down a bit. So I think the view of that, I think, is good. But equally, competition should drive the market. Yeah. Performance should drive the market. Um, and network rail responding quickly to the little things we need. You know, two tracks to Felixstowe. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, yeah, so the little things like that, um, uh, I, I think – they need to focus on and we point them in the direction of those but no i agree with you entirely it shouldn't be a government-led let's grow more grain are you talking about two tracks up the bank out of the docks um 
Um, no, no, I've given up on Felix Stone now. I think we've got what we're going to get, Felix Stone. My, my, my latest one is Ely. Um, if we can just get two tracks from Soham uh, to Ely and get some of the single leads fixed there. So not, not, not the billions that they wanted to spend. I'm not even sure what billions buys you at Ely, but, but two tracks on the Soham branch. It's just, I mean, I look... <laughs> We've run a yard in Whitemore where they, uh, in the 80s, closed the railways from Whitemore to um, uh, up Spalding. To yeah, and that would have been one of the busiest freight links. It, there would have been intermodal <laughs> nose to tail, wouldn't there, across? It would. It would have been nose to tail. We'd have never gone anywhere near, near the East Coast. They'd never have had to build a fly under uh, Peterborough. Um, you do learn from these things that once this infrastructure's gone, it's... And it was a very um, late closure, wasn't it? It was about 85 yeah, it's because a river bridge was knackered and they, they didn't want to spend the five million replacing the river bridge. Good grief. <laughs> well, that, talking about that's capacity. That's the old railway. That's the old <laughs> railway for you. It's, it's, I should say it's not like that now. That was at Guy Hearn, presumably. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's where you drive down to March. There's, yeah. a, there's a few towers. Yeah, yeah, it's just on the corner. Yeah, there. Guy Hearn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. If only. Oh. <laughs> if only but you know we bat up regardless we'll um my main task now is um i, I mean we've, we're on our fifth owner now richard i don't know whether you know but we're I really wow we've been sold four times now once when the gb group was sold when first group stepped in yeah then uh as we're recording this i need to be careful what i say about folk we we worked within first group for a while <clears throat> met some good people there. Uh, met, met Hainsey there. Mary Grant was there as well. So there, there were some good people in first group, but they uh, most of us migrated away. Then Eurotunnel. We tried to do a management buyout at that point, but they were cash rich, still are. Um, then they sold us to Swedish private equity, uh, EQT, um, where for a period I ran a Swedish freight railway and a German one as well. Then uh, more recently, about just before COVID, they sold us to a company called InfraCap, yeah. Uh, so they uh, uh, they have uh, owned us since 2019. They'll spin us again. Um, the fund we sit within will probably crystallise by 28, 29. Yeah. So I imagine we'll we'll go again, which it's a bit of a pain. Uh, you, you end up with two jobs if you if you're not careful. Mm. But, mm. Uh, but but yeah, no fifth owner, uh, eighth chairman. Uh, wow. <laughs> Same CEO. <laughs> it shows you're very good at managing upwards, John, is all I can say. Uh, they never catch me, I'll give them one. <laughs> uh, well, you, you, you mentioned capacity and, you know, obviously the um, uh, the closure of that line and uh, through March and, that, uh, um, and how good it would have been if we'd still got that, totally get that. Um, government's just made a decision to cancel HS2. Um, that has significant impacts on the West Coast mainline, probably your biggest, well, one of, if not the biggest intermodal freight corridor on the railway. I mean, you must be sort of tearing your hair out of that and going, oh, flipping heck, how, with no more capacity north of Hansacre, what are we going to do? I mean, is it is it as bad as people are suggesting it might be? Yeah, with HS2, I mean, it, it's it's all, all a bit of a mess. Um, <clears throat> You kind of understand the underlying issues in relation to cost, although, I mean, I'm no expert on these things, but the specification for the trace, the speed that the politicians wanted it to go at, I think, um, and the logic of putting everything through a tunnel 
um, I think has increased the cost. You have to remember that one of the constructors is actually one of the French high-speed rail builders as well. So, um, but when it comes to capacity, um, I don't think anyone knows, Richard. Uh, I, I think, uh, talking to the minister the other day, I think it's fairly clear that where the railway spits itself out near college, it's, it's going to have to have some work done on the traditional railway, um, you know, even in terms of how it connects, whether you connect it to the slow lines or the fast lines, whether you need a flyover to do that. I think I think that's almost up in the air. Um, clearly, when you get to college and you've got the split to stone and, and then over to Stafford, that's going to be hugely congested, depending on how many trains HS2 is spitting out. Um, so it, it just really hasn't been thought through. I think the case for 2A, whether there was a case to go beyond crew, yeah, no, I get some of the debate over that. But the logic of dropping the connection to crew just seems seems mad, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think equally at the at the other end of the trace, you know, what's happening at Euston Station and how long that now gets delayed. From my understanding, they are driving the tunnels through to Euston because I think that's contracted. But how long it takes the private sector to get involved at Euston Station in the way the government is suggesting could take years and years. It was already fairly far back that Euston was going to open. But you look, I mean, this is an HS2 comment rather than a comment around capacity for rail freight. But you look at the changes that have happened at King's Cross and St Pancras through the investment there. You can't yeah. really value to that economically. And Euston, you need to walk down the Euston Road to what is a fairly rough area mm. that needs redevelopment. And it will just, it will change that. And you look at the other end, you look at Birmingham, um, where it goes into the area of Birmingham, which is particularly poor, that will get developed. And I think the links between the main cities, it's long since proven and it's been proven elsewhere in Europe. You know, if you, if you make Manchester and Birmingham only 45 minutes, an hour apart, it, it completely stimulates the economy of both yeah. cities. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is being missed. Um, but from a capacity point of view, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, we'll have space up to rugby. <laughs> yeah, some of our trains only go to Birmingham, so that's good. But there's a hell of a lot of freight goes West Coast Main Line, Stafford, you know, Stafford Crew, one of the busiest bits of the West Coast Main Line. And then it narrows to uh, as you're going uh, north of there. So, um, so yeah, um, who knows? I mean, things can change. Uh, I'm particularly, and I'm, I'm not sure where things stand at the moment, but the logic of selling the land back to almost completely undermine uh, the 2A section seems bonkers to me. I, I would sit on that for a while and wait to see what happens equally but you know all politicians labor having gone to say they were going to build the whole thing now have sort of said oh yeah no well we can't reverse what the tories have done we're just going to leave it as is and it, it can't be left as is it just can't yeah no. completely no. finds the business case of what they've done no. um, and so but short term um it, it gives all of us a problem in the market because we're moving we're moving a lot of construction material both in and out of the the trace we're probably running 12 to 14 trains a day of material aggregates in muck away from tunneling tunnel segments in probably side track in um uh, and these things are are hugely you know the whole logic of building infrastructure is to stimulate the public uh, the private sector with uh, 
with the amount of work it creates and, and there's going to be a there's going to be a cessation of that in the same way you have feast and famine on electrification you get all the people to speak you get a good skill set in there you get competence and also you do nothing so all the people drift away and you're back to square one and you need a continuity of that type of stuff. Yeah. so yeah bit of a mess it, i mean they all sort of um wanting to know what the future holds of course is, is very important isn't it um, and we've seen some rapid changes around it. For example, on the S&C, it doesn't seem that long ago um, that there was a lot of investment going into there so that it could handle, what, a dozen coal trains a day from Hunterston to power stations in Yorkshire. Uh, and now we've got a sort of, if you like, a modernised mainline. It's all gone. Um, well, we, still, we, we still run some freight over there. There's quite yeah. a bit of aggregate goes over there now. But, yeah. Well, yeah, but th that, that big chunk of traffic, uh, but surely it makes hard to justify the case for infrastructure when things can change so quickly? Well, they can, but that's kind of what we're good at, um, Nigel. You know, there's a lot of debate about capacity in the working timetable that sits in our agreements with Network Rail. And, you know, sometimes you're not using volume and then other times you are. Um, the market does change. The railways has to be flexible like that. The, the roads are. Um, and I get, you know, for the amount of money that's put into the settle in carlisle people might question the validity of that but it should never have been left to get in the state it was in no it shouldn't you know the the the, the, the investment was only created because they sort of downgraded it to the point of making like railway what did they uh, call it a sprinter only rail yeah yeah so you know the, these are key corridors and i think that's getting more appreciated now you know that there will be other work comes back there the deep sea market um, has developed, but equally the internal intermodal market, not that that goes via the SNC, you're looking at Western East Coast mainly, but, um, but you know, those markets are beginning to develop and you have to be very wary. It's almost as bad as closing a railway line. If you let it deteriorate to the point where it isn't capable of carrying anything above something that weighs 50 tonnes or whatever it might be, then the point of it becomes, you, you can't exploit that. You know, you, 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 um, it, it, it becomes almost as bad as a closed railway. So, so yes, I get your point. Um, but as I say, you know, I think they should have done more to keep it in a fit state in the first place. And, and then, you know, I've always said it's a bit like Richard's point earlier on. You know, if you put some infrastructure in that makes sense from the point of view of what the freight operators say is needed, we will then exploit it. We're the, you know, we, we need to grow the market. I, You're I very good I, at that. Yeah, yeah, we we will we will run the trains. You know, just listen to us because it's not a lot and and it's not billions. But put a loop in, put a bit of two track in, put a siding in. Once it's there, we we will exploit it. Um, but you've made that point twice in this interview now, John. That some of the things you require are just not that big or not that complicated. I mean, I've sat in meetings with you where you've been pounding the desk saying, "All I want is two in tracks you know it's not it's not like you're looking for grade separated junctions and a, and a new railway and yet it seems so difficult to even get those relatively modest things away yeah 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 i i i mean for all well, we used to joke about it now but you know for all the politicking for all the engagement with the mandarins or the politicians i just used to say if i get two tracks to felix though by the day i die then perhaps we've achieved something and it does it does feel like that. And we actually did, well, it's only a mile's worth of two track, but at least it's bi-direction. Um, we actually did get that. And we, we got, 
and some of this has dried up. You know, it boils down to the Strategic Freight Network Fund, which was not a lot of money, but was um, ring fenced um, for purely freight things. Uh, um, um, you know, we got Bacon Factory called at Ipswich. We got the link uh, from the Overbridge and then Eaton down to the uh, down to the main line. So yeah. it, it wasn't enough. We got the extended sidings at Buxton for the aggregate services. So it wasn't a lot, and it was still like playing through treacle, but stuff was happening. Sadly, all that's gone. And, you know, we've been lobbying hard now to say, please, just within the control period, ring friends, 200, 300 millions worth of money, uh, put the governance into network rail. We'll sit on a governance board and we'll say, yeah, what, what the next obvious thing to do is lengthen the, the siding at Southampton or whatever it might be to get longer trains. But sadly, that's that's just not... On the government's agenda, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not very good at looking backwards, um, and I, I know you're not particularly good at, at that as well. It's always about looking forwards. But I, there's one thing I do genuinely regret, actually, um, about the Strategic Rail Authority decisions taken, and one was in a particularly difficult spending review thing. It was cancelling the freight facilities grant, huh. um, and that was a mistake, right? And absolutely, I put my hands up and say that was a mistake. Um, and it's essential, isn't it? Whether it's a strategic uh, uh, rail freight network fund or whatever, um, because your customers can't justify the capex of these these sort of um, terminal connections, can they? So unless the public purse supports those, these aren't going to get done. Or is is that too negative? Um, no, I think it's true. It's again, you know, it's a bit like because a lot of people say. Well, should it be government money that's supporting the private sector in, in operating more freight services? But, but the same happens on road. You know, there's there's reasons there's two grooves on the inside lane of most motorways is because lorries do far more damage than they pay for to the infrastructure. So the government plows money into putting four lanes onto motorways or whatever it might be. So I do think it's a reasonable ask. Um, I do think it's not a lot of money on occasions as well, uh, Richard. I mean, in terms of freight facilities grant, it is capital uh, that's being invested. So I, I think as a mechanism, I, the one thing I learned is once it's gone, it's gone. You know, you keep asking for it back. And actually, a lot of the time, you're just trying to retain, like mode shift revenue support, which is a revenue grant around deep sea market. Um, you know, we're desperately saying, do not throw this in the bin. <laughs> you know, we'd love it to grow. We'd love it to stimulate the market more. But for goodness sake, don't just ditch it because it's 20 million quid of money the Treasury can have back. So, yeah, I, I think I, I think that was a mistake. I, I would agree with you. Um, we tried to do our bit. We plow money back in. But, but there's an argument that some of the infrastructure is far too expensive um, in the first place. But Well, I am slightly nervous. You know, if you do get your second line through Soham, somebody will want to put a platform on the other side and spend another 16 million quid on a platform, which I still can't get my head around. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right about uh, the cost of things. Do, is there anybody out there? Have you got any customers who can actually say, do you know what, I, I can I can see the switch to rail freight makes sense and I'm prepared to put some cash in? I, I'll tell you why I asked the question. I, I live in Derbyshire. Um, there's a load of guys want to reopen the line through here, through um, through Bakewell, and they're absolutely convinced themselves, I think, that the 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 freight um, there's a there's a freight flow that could justify that, and there's all these um, you know sort of aggregates business prepared to tip a load of money into into supporting it. 
I have to say, I don't really see it. I just don't see how the economics works for for your customers to put capital in. Or, or again, am I just being too negative? No, I think something. Um, no, I think the economics of it don't work. Um, I think you know we're dealing with customers who have equally tight margins with ourselves. Construction is mm. off. They don't see it as their role to invest. But there are commercial deals that can be done. You look at the um, the one hundred and six development, um, the planning permission via the 106 process that took place at Felixstowe, there was some port money came into infrastructure. You know, some of the two tracks on the Felixstowe line, some of that money came from Port of Felixstowe. I think Network Rail needs to be more commercial about that rather than thinking they're the sole um, arbiter of, of, of the investment. There are deals that can be done. Um, but but in certain circumstances, if you're looking to reopen and close railway, the costs of that union took east-west are so astronomic, you would never get the economic case. I do think with something like that, I don't think the law allows this. That, that you, you could build some form of railway there. It's not network rail. It's not governed by all the rules that rule network rail. But it's a fairly simple piece of infrastructure that is maybe at 10 or 20 miles an hour that would be considerably cheaper. But, you know, if you look at there's some then who carries the risk of the tunnels falling down, who carries the risk of the viaduct needing rebuilding um, on what is a, a fairly you know, going through a, a hilly part of the world. So those liabilities have to still sit sit with government if you to ever get private sector capital into yeah. issues like that. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, and you lobby long and hard for it. There, there's a point where you reach in life, you go, oh, hell, never bloody happen. Um, <laughs> let's... Stop asking for it. Although, sadly, that's one of the classic bits of railway that should never have closed. I mean, I had to take um, so Tim Shovel, who's now running our competitive freightliner. I took him to the peak. So in the peak, you've got five of the biggest quarries, rail-connected quarries. It's the land time forgot. It's wonderful. You go there. There are ground signals that you don't see anywhere else on the network. <laughs> All stuff like this. And the signalman has his little pet dog in the signal cabin, which when 2,000 tons of freight train goes past, it almost wrecks the old Midland Railway box. It almost falls down. And then we stood in a car park in COVID, and I, I took the quarry manager down. And we have considerable problems of flooding. It's all semaphore signaling. Um, the, the, the whole signaling system's outdated there. And I asked the quarry manager, I said, tell Tim how much planning permission you've got. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, we dig three and a half million tons of limestone, hard limestone out of here a year. He said, I've got planning for 120 years of three and a half million tons of limestone. He says, we are going to be here for that period of time. I said, what proportion by rail? And he goes, we're doing about 60% by rail. And I go, Tim. Is there going to be a flooded tunnel at Dove Holes in 120 years' time? Is the signalling still going to? Is the signal still going to have his pet dog, and the whole thing feel like it's shaking to bits? And that's where you know there needs to be some more strategic thought about the importance of of how rail freight interfaces with the main network. And I'm not sure it's quite there. Um, it's still government money that needed to do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, freight trains don't vote, do they? No. Nope. Yep. <laughs> at Sorrel. You go Bang Road out of Sorrel on the up fast for over a mile because there's no crossovers that have ever been installed outside Mount Sorrel Quarry. Well, you and I have talked about that before when I was involved at the Great Central. But, I mean, it brings all four lines to a standstill, doesn't it, every time they send a train out of uh... Out of Mount Sorrel. I mean, it does, and then get, you come back to capacity. So getting slots to get in and out of the place is torture. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's, so there is, you know, rail freight growth. It does need the small things, Richard. 
but equally someone someone needs to sit down and go actually we need to allocate some money to um, work on the links at Mount Sorrel out or work on because these are industries you know, the great thing about rail freight it's not about navel gazing over train performance it's about construction it's about GDP it's about steel manufacturing and car manufacturing it's about you know building things like HS2 it's about the whole key planks of the economy and how it works here and and you have to be seen to oil the wheels of that bit I think yeah and the, the, the implications that they're not so I mean do you feel more or less positive with the outlook for rail freight now than you did 10 years ago John You've got to be positive, Nigel. <laughs> so, hey, he's a, he's a Sunderland supporter, right? He has, he has to be positive, otherwise you just give up, don't you? Five years in League One, God help me. I, went to, I didn't even know where some of the bloody places were. <laughs> where the hell is Forest Green? I mean, do me a favour. It's like... Um, I've, I've oh, I know no, Nailsworth. I know that one, yeah. <laughs> it's on top of a hill. It is, it is. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always admired your relentless positivity, Joe. <laughs> I think um, life's too short, Nudge. You take risks in life, and uh, unless you drive things on, if you if you deteriorate into your own little world and get all nervous about stuff, then you'll never change anything. And sometimes the risks work, sometimes they don't. I think so, underlying that, as I sell, tell, tell our shareholder, I said, you've got a business here um, that is going to tick all the boxes. You know, we're owned by an infrastructure business that is all about sustainability, um, it's you know it's investors the pension funds put considerable restrictions around which businesses they buy and they bought us because they see this as a as the future and we'll have our ups and downs and we'll we'll plow risk in in order to make sure that we're leading the pack but yeah yeah of course I'm positive so it's I can't come, I haven't come across many people who seem to believe that the Conservatives are going to win the next election um so we likely will be faced with a new government in the next year at the, the most i guess so what would you be hoping that louise haig the shadow transport secretary is going to say and do i mean i do know that she's been out and about talking quietly to some um folk who know about railways and taking advice has she talked to you have you got an appointment in her diary we're working on that um and there's the question as to whether she will be in that particular job if they do get in power. That's one of your problems, just second-guessing who's going to have the job. I, I think we've got a very good minister at the moment. I don't really care about his political colour. He takes an interest in what we do and sees it as important, and hopefully she'll do the same. Um, I think equally, you know, the one thing I've noticed about this minister is because he chaired the Transport Select Committee, he, he knows his brief. He understands, he understands it, he does. And I've had people come through the Transport either the Secretary of State or the Ministers who, who, who come and go and they haven't got a clue about their brief. It's been a breath of fresh air, be they Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, whoever they might be, to have someone who actually gets what we do. Um, and that will change things a lot quicker. So I don't know her. I've met her a couple of times, but I don't know her well. Hopefully she's, she's, she's well briefed and intelligent and understands what we do and hopefully that'll be helpful. Well, you need to keep on doing what you're doing, John. Um, you know, so your relentless posit positivity and doing it all through a smile is is fantastic to see. And um, I hope and um, that that it continues and that you'll no. come back on green signals at some point. Well, no, I have to tell. I can't let John Smith come on here and not tell you 
one of my favourite stories about John and his relentless positivity, because we can see <laughs> a Sunderland shirt in the background there. You know um, where this one's going. <laughs> you know where this one's going. So John very kindly invited me to see Sunderland versus Blackburn Rovers, my team. It's a few years ago now. It was. And he, yeah, you made me go down on the pitch, right? We had a photo with one of, all with your Sunderland kit on, right? Uh, which I thought was a bit harsh. Uh, it was a pretty grim game from memory. Nil nil. And nil nil. And at the end of the game, I think it was Barry Turnbull was there as well, right? Yeah. And you and Barry and a couple of others sat there working out how many points you would get from the remaining games to stay yep. up. Yes. How many did you get? None. None. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Until Derby County beat us, we went down with the lowest Premier League ever. And that was the last point we ever got was from Blackburn. And you were so positive. And it was, oh, it was just, it was one of, I, I, I've, I've downed out on that one, I have to say. Anyway, sorry about that, Nigel, but it's... No, uh... that's fine. That's, that, that, that's fine. And talking to John, we need to talk to him again, because we've, we've talked about this, Richard, about for this series, for the, for the podcasts. Um, that when we have guests on, we ought we ought to ask them to come along with one, if not two, anecdotes. Yeah. And I happen to know that John has got some stunners <laughs> because he's he's told he's told me a few. Over, Are they over broadcastable? Well, <laughs> some, 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 That's what I'm, I'm just trying to think through them now. But um, <laughs> at least three I've already ditched. So. He's, he's, he's also got one fantastic photograph, which we'll have to get him to come back on with, with with a gantry over a line somewhere. It's health and safety nightmare, and there's a bloke sitting on this gantry right yeah. in the middle, right over all the tracks, yeah, with a- no ladders, anything around you, just sat there with his arms folded, beaming. But we'll have to do the anecdote thing. But look, sorry, we could just be getting into pub mode now. Aren't we? Um, <laughs> yeah. John, thanks ever so much for coming along. It's it's a it's been a delight to have you on. We'll definitely have you back sometime. Have a think about the anecdotes because we'll have to do that. It'll be a great little addition to this um, to this series. And I know you've got some really good ones, <laughs> even some that are broadcastable. So yeah. all all success to you. More yeah. power to your elbow. Keep on doing what you're doing, John. And thanks yeah. a lot for coming. Coming on. Cheers, John. Yeah, thank you both of you. Cheers. Wow. Well, how was that for you, Richard? I'm exhausted just watching it again, and I knew what was coming. He's brilliant, isn't he? I mean, he is absolutely amazing. I mean, despite the um, the Sunderland uh, Football Club um, affiliation, which we'll 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 uh, we'll let we'll let that one go. No one's Um, perfect. No, he. I mean, it's absolutely fine. I mean, every every politician, every industry leader, everybody interested in rail freight, well, actually not even just rail freight, you know, um, sh- should listen to that um, because it's clear, it's direct. You know, you can sense his frustration. I mean, uh, one of the things that I found odd about the last um, couple of months on rail freight was the bit we talked about there in the interview about this 75% growth target. I mean, it is a little bit like, you know, that, how much grain should every factory produce next year sort of thing. Um, Government can't really influence it. What they can do is they can sit down with all the rail freight operators and the rail freight group uh, and and say, what do you need? Do that and then let them get on with it. You know, that really is um, the the best way forward. I've I've certainly learned that with freight. You know, you just, these are very, very impressive people. If given the support and and you unlock the things that they can't do themselves. Everything else, they'll just get on and do it. Absolutely. Roll the pitch for them and then just get out of the bloody way. Yeah. 
um, and let people like John and Maggie and everybody else in freight. Yeah, yeah don't Tim Shoveler right. at Freightliner, all these guys. These are serious. These are really. They are. Yeah, pretty much the, the, the best we've got. So let them get on and do it. They are, and they are the liveliest people around. Not that yeah. they're utterly irrepre- yeah. irrepressible. I can't even yeah. say it now. Um, and we should just get out the way. So we'll have to do what we can to get that interview in front of as many people as you said. Well, that's sadly all we've got time for today in the first of our big interviews. Um, looking forward with a prime minister who looks increasingly hostile to railways, 2024 is going to be just as challenging as 2023, if not more so. And Green Signals will be right here to chat about it all and hold their feet to the fire where necessary. Isn't that right, Richard? Well, just if 2023, if the way 2023 is ended is a signal of how 2024 is going to start, I think holding their feet to the fire might actually start to want to dip them in it, actually. It's, 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 going, to be, it's going to be a tough old year. Well, we return to the quote that from, our, was it our last episode about putting some well-targeted boots into, care, <laughs> yes. into carefully chosen? chosen hey, do you know that got, some, that got some thumbs down? Really? Apparently, yeah. Great good let's get some, <laughs> let's get some debate going at last it's well really absolutely yeah. absolutely at least we're having an effect there so don't forget to give us a thumbs up or as Richard just said a thumbs down yeah not too many uh, please but not too many of them <laughs> not too many of them that's one place we do not want balance <laughs> and subscribe to whatever channel you choose to listen or watch us on and don't forget to leave us a comment or an email at info at greensignals.org We love to hear what you think, and all the comments help us to further design episodes, shows, videos, and who knows, maybe we'll branch out into some other exciting firsts for Green Signals, maybe even some stuff where you can get involved with us directly. So do stay tuned, do keep listening, Um, watch this space. You ain't seen nothing yet. We (laughs) do have big... That was a song. Which group had a song called You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, Richard? Your music. Sorry, I'm, I'm having a I'm having a blank. Go on. It was Backman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> yeah, okay, very good. There you go. So you ain't seen nothing yet, but for now, it's right away and farewell. Mm-hmm.